Welcome to the Roses and Rhetoric Podcast. We are your hosts, Jimmy Hackett and Joseph Stanford. So I, I was thinking, how would I how would I describe what we're trying to do here? And the best way that I can summarize it is that we are trying to share ways in which we are trying to apply um, unique ideas and thoughts that we encounter into action for our own lives. And so both of us do a good amount of reading on any number of topics about mindset and other topics that are more obscure. And I think we're trying to use this podcast as a way to, to try to describe or try to assess the process of taking those ideas and, and putting them into practice or turning them into things that we can actually uh, do rather than just talk about. And so the topics that I that I started with uh, for this week were topics that were on my mind, not just from the point of view of thinking about them, but wondering what would I what would I need to do differently in my life to actually live some of these principles or how to actually bring some of these things into, um, into action. And so as far as what this podcast is trying to accomplish, it's, it's trying to capture that journey and that discussion about taking ideas and putting them into practice for uh, people who find themselves at a similar point in their lives as you and I do, which are early 30 year old people that are, kind of on that cusp of adulthood, basically, that are trying to make that transition and at the same time trying to avoid the pitfalls that we've seen other people fall into, either before us or with us. Yeah, and absolutely. To add to that, um, I find my mind takes me on quite the journey throughout the week, and it likes to investigate and explore different ideas, different topics, different things. And a lot of times there's so many different things that I forget a lot of the topics that I learned about in the previous week. So something to get out of this is to have a place to, to recap and reinforce all of those topics and ideas that come up so that they can be applied to our own lives. Yeah, I think that that's spot on. It's, it's, a, it's a public journal in, in some sense that we are writing together. <laughs> that's uh, maybe the best way to summarize it. Okay, perfect. Well, on that note, should we jump into the topics? Sure. So this topic's been on my mind for quite a while. Um, I'll just say off the cuff, I don't really have any personal experience with it, but uh, it is something that has been an, an interest of mine uh, since probably college. And as I kind of learned a little bit more about the history of the, of the sixties and basically uh, I was, was curious as to what went wrong with the psychedelic movement. And to try to explain what I mean by what went wrong, it, the, the vision that some of the people had with the psychedelic movement in the 60s was that it was gonna be this all-encompassing um, mental awakening of the general population, and that it would lead to you know, all sorts of improvements in society. And for the past maybe I don't know, two or three weeks, I've been reading the uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test written by Tom Wolfe, where mm -hmm. and discusses time that he spent with the Merry Pranksters and Kessie, who were certainly one of the main groups that was, that was spearheading this movement. And whether or not they were 
or whether or not they had any impact, I, I think it's safe to say that still it's, it's the case that psychedelics are something that the general population doesn't have much um, interaction with. I, I wouldn't say that, that there hasn't been any change in that, but certainly it hasn't been the kind of all-encompassing societal change that they were envisioning. And so I was trying to read this book as a way to try to understand why that was the case, because as I look out of the world now, I, I see people asking very similar questions in, in a very uh, a very deep way that the people are trying to understand what really makes a life meaningful. And I think what's driving that question now is maybe in the 60s, it was, it was war in, in Vietnam, but I think now what's driving it is that as people find themselves in more and more precarious situations with their work, which of course for many people work is something that they drive a, a, a great amount of self-worth from, that as their work becomes something that is that is maybe at the same time becoming more mundane, but then also more precarious, they're looking for other other ways to find meaning in their lives. And certainly people who have observed their parents going through this are themselves wanting to avoid falling into a similar uh, pattern as they, they might observe their parents going through. And I think that brings very naturally a, a conversation about psychedelics and spirituality. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I don't have an answer for why it, it went wrong, but that's been something that's been on my mind recently. And I think it's going to be a topic that becomes more important. And my un understanding is that there are very serious groups right now that are trying to push for these type of psychedelic drugs to become legal. And there's growing movements around using them for different therapeutics. And, you know, I, I won't try to recite any data off the top of my head, but certainly it's becoming, I think, more popular. But I think that it's tied to a, a broader question about finding meaning in life. And as we observe certain paths for, for meaningful lives that, are, that feel more and more risky in, in some sense, that people will become uh, more interested in looking for other ways of, of finding that meaning. Okay. I, I think that there's a lot, of, a lot of points that we can touch on there. But before we start deep diving, can, do you want to go over? You mentioned the Merry Pranksters. You mentioned Keezy. Do you want sure. to just give a set the stage for who those guys were and what they were doing? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Kessie was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, he was an author during the, the 60s. He wrote other books as well um, and was also one of the people at the forefront of the psychedelic movement, uh, including uh, a lot of LSD. This is all discussed in. Would you the, consider him a psychonaut? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't remember that word coming up in uh, the book that I'm reading right now. So I, I don't want to give him a label that he might not have wanted himself. Um, when I think psychonaut, I think more of like Tim Leary and people that were maybe more um, Terrence studying McKenna. it than Terrence McKinney. People who were really more studying it. The impression I get from from Kessie was that it was more of a more of an applied. Uh, experience with, with, with the drug and really a, a, a movement of getting it out to the people and, and trying to basically create societal change with, um, with these drugs. Now, like I said, I haven't finished the book yet, so I, I, I really don't know where it's going, but, um, you know, maybe that isn't the, the case. And if I, if I seem to recall in the part of the book that I've already read, I think at some point they take a step away from using drugs, but I, when I, when I finish the book, I have a more complete picture, but as far as who the Merry Pranksters are, the Merry Pranksters were 
basically the name of people that were following Kessie around the U.S. as they were doing this. They, they, they traveled around the U.S. in this elaborately painted old bus and they would, you know, basically uh, just travel the world or the, the country and uh, talk about LSD and drugs and, and host parties where these drugs were dispensed. And so, I mean, there was a there was a community of people around him that believed in the vision. And one of the things that Tom Wolfe, who's the author of the book, gets across is that uh, Kessie really does have this magnetic personality and gives off a lot of very typical leadership traits. He, he's, he's very good at, at getting leaders and developing a following. And I mean, obviously, that's a that's a trope that we still in our, in our that we still encounter today. We see people that are just magnetic and can only pull themselves uh, or people to their mission. And so that was definitely a part of it as well. But as far as who they were, it was this group of people uh, that really took it upon themselves to to travel and to really spread the word about about these drugs. Okay, so the the Merry Pranksters, in other words, were kind of his crew that followed him around in this exactly. in this bus, and they did a bunch of drugs. Um, they weren't really. I know they were called pranksters, but were they really breaking that many rules? Were they out there, you know, breaking you know, things and vandalizing, or were they more? I don't more I, just rebels I, from society. Yeah, I think more the latter. Um, I I think pranksters. One of the things that they would come up with is that they would. They would find ways of interacting with people that would make people feel uncomfortable. And so they would dress in unique ways. They would dress in outlandish clothing. Um, you know, they would, you know, paint things in really elaborate ways to kind of stand out. So, I mean, there was definitely a, a, a costume aspect of it as well. Um, one of the things that, that's interesting is that I'm, so this would have been going on in, uh, at a point in time when I, I, I don't even think, and this is trying to, to remember from the book, but I don't know that LSD was even illegal during the whole span of this. And so that, that would kind of plays a dynamic in it as well, because you have these scenes where these cops don't really know what to do because they're not really breaking any rules. It's LSD, but that wasn't illegal yet. And so, so that, that's kind of interesting as well. Um, the, the term prankster, I, I, I think comes more from kind of what you were saying that they're more rebellious, that they're clearly, um, wherever they go, they're putting on a show and wherever they go, they're immediately recognized for, for who they are. And, you know, part of the, they, they do that on, on purpose to kind of draw people out of their comfort zones. And uh, there's this whole phrase in the, in the book about being on the bus versus being off the bus. And this idea that, you know, if you really get the mission of what they're trying to accomplish, then you're on the bus. And if you're not, then you're off the bus. And you have people that are in the pranksters who start off uh, on the bus. And then for whatever reason, they get off the bus and, so, I mean, there's this, there's, there's definitely language and, and a perspective that this is a group of people that is really onto something. And when you come in contact with it, and if you understand it, then you kind of become part of this group as well. So it's, it's very much a, um, a band of people with a, with a common mission. And I think prankster is more tied to how they're perceived by other people and, and kind of the fact that they're putting on a show wherever they go trying to draw people out of their normal lives and to really draw attention to themselves and their movement. Sure. Okay. So you were talking about this psychedelic movement and how it's had a few kind of flare ups to say in, in recent history, like for one example would be during, during this, this uh, bus tour that they were having and during the sixties culture, there was a big uprising in psychedelics 
And it seems like nowadays they're becoming more and more popular as well. Um, I think it's a good point that you brought up that it, it is curious why they never took over and why more larger part of the population doesn't indulge in the psychedelic culture or use the psychedelic drugs. Um, despite the fact that everything I see about them and everything I read about them is good news. Uh, right. Like you said, in terms of therapeutics, in terms of um, treatment resistant depression, PTSD, all these different conditions, they're finding more and more applications for the drugs. And I'm not hearing a lot of negative side effects for psychedelics. I'm not hearing any drawbacks, which to me does seem a little suspicious. Right. Um, I know that Dr. Drew's famous for saying that there's, there's no drug that provides a benefit. There's no drug that makes you healthier. In other words, there's always going to be side effects. There's always going to be a downside to it. Uh, do you have any clue what the downside to these drugs might be or why, why they're not more popular in society? So I, with regards to the side effects, I think, and, and this is in the book too, I mean, one of the things that is, is made clear is that there are, there are really such things as people just having bad trips. And I, I think it's important, and there are, are characters in, in, in Tom Wolf's book, uh, at least one that I can remember, maybe there are more, but who really, uh, after a lot of drug use, really found themselves kind of in a, in a weird mental space, and they had to get away from, from the group for a little bit. And so I do think that based on what I've read so far, it is possible, like with any, any drug, it's possible to, to take too much, and it's possible to, you know, uh, whether it's you know become paranoid or, or whatever it is um that's something to take lightly i i don't think and i i do think part of you know it's it's be, because it is dealing with your mind in a very direct way you know maybe maybe every drug affects your state of mind to some extent i mean maybe even tylenol has like some very small measure on your conscious state or something maybe i i don't know but with these drugs where that is definitely the case, um, I think anybody would, would say that it, uh, the utmost care should be taken and that it shouldn't be done lightly. And so from that point of view, I can understand a, a general hesitation. Like I said, I, I've never done these drugs. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp of somebody who is, who is very, um, I don't know if I would say concerned, but very uh, cautious, I guess, about about messing with, with a mind. And so I, I can understand that hesitation for the general public, but one of the, one of the wars that was fought so well in the past that I, that I still think is happening today is the way that the, the hippie counterculture movement was relocated to, you know, kind of these lazy bums, you know, that was the messaging coming from the right during that time period that these are people who are, you know, anti-American, they're anti-work, they're anti-capitalism, they're anti-this and that. And while that was, you know, definitely a part of some of their message, uh, I think the disservice was in discounting what I would argue as the more important quest that the hippies were on, which was trying to find something spiritual and something meaningful in this world that people can directly experience. And to, to lump that in and to basically... Uh, demonize psychedelics at the same time, I think was a great disservice because, you know, whatever your thoughts are on, on America or on capitalism or on, you know, any other of the hosted issues how it was being discussed in, in the 60s, 
I don't think it was necessary to demonize the soul searching that was happening during that time. And mm -hmm. I think part of that labeling still is with us today. You know, if anybody's ever had the privilege of <laughs> talking to parents about marijuana or about psychedelic drugs, it's, you know, it, it's, it's very easy to, to, to find yourself, you know, waiting off labels of, you know, basically ones that were tied over from the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s, which again, I think is a, is a, is a great shame. Great. So talking about, talking about psychedelics and some of the effects that it has, um, Terrence McKenna, we, we both know him. He's a oh, yeah. very outspoken psychonaut who's done a lot of psychedelic drugs, just about every one there is, um, hundreds, if not thousands of times. And, then, and in, in, in big doses, right? That's another thing, too, uh, that he talks oh, about, too. <laughs> yeah, he's the, he's the founder, of, founder of the heroic dose, <laughs> yeah. um, which is essentially enough psychedelics that take the choice out of you so that you're forced into this psychedelic region. Um, and the thing that concerns me the most about Terrence McKenna is the fact that he died of brain cancer. Right, right. <laughs> it, yes. seems, it seems a little right. more than coincidental that... Uh, the drugs that affect your brain are the ones that he did a lot of and right. his brain is exactly what got cancer and killed him. So right. that seemed a little peculiar to me, but I, I'm not seeing any other examples of that in many other, in any of these other big psychedelic users of the time or of today. So we'll, we'll keep right. an eye on that, but it does seem a little fishy to me. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something where in the, like we were, we're, we were saying at the beginning, there's, there's nothing you're going to put in your body that doesn't have a side effect. It, there, there's just too many chemical pathways in your body. There's too many interactions happening in your body. You know, there's, there's no way that you're putting a drug in your body and only getting positives. You know, maybe it's mostly positive, but there's gonna always be some negatives. So I, I agree with you. Be, before anybody decides to take the plunge or the jump, I guess it depends on what direction you think you're gonna be going, into uh any any drug use or anything else i mean obviously i it's important to do your homework and obviously we're not going to advocate people to do drugs but you know if you're going to you know obviously uh be aware of the risks and, and be aware that one of those risks is that we really don't know the long-term effects of these drugs because they've they've been obscure for a, a large part of their of their use uh, or rather they've evaded study for so much of their use yeah, absolutely. So I think what we're saying is the takeaway is don't do drugs or otherwise you'll uh, get brain cancer and die. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and your parents make fun of you, which is also maybe the, the, the worst part about it. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a funny thing with the previous generation, with the old generations, how they just they just can't accept some of the things from today. Like if you grew up in a time in a family, in a culture where you thought marijuana was unacceptable, you're not going to break out of that. You're going to be an 80 year old yeah. and you're going to be condemning marijuana, despite all the overwhelming evidence that it's, it's not that bad, not as bad. In, as people thought. There's no reason right. for madness. That's taken right. Place. Oh, well, no, right. That was all propaganda. And not only that, but of course, you know, the, the cliche rebuttals, you know, the alcohol, the tobacco use. And then also the fact that, you know, anybody can walk into a smoke shop and buy any number of, you know, whatever these other compounds are that people you know, indulgent, you know, I mean, we all have, you know, we, we've all heard funny stories for about, about those kind of experiences, right? I mean, it's, the whole thing is silly. I, 
I find it annoying when, when people that are on the pro marijuana side treat marijuana, like a, like a, like a cure-all, you know, it's, oh, this is, this is a great medicine that does all this stuff. And I, I'm equally annoyed by the right who, or I shouldn't even say the right, I, it, anybody who reduces it to a drug that lazy people do. You know, I, I think both are unnecessary and are harmful in their own ways. Yeah. in in fact, it seems like the resurgence of psychedelics in today's age is a, uh, it's coming from a much different angle than it came from back then. It feels like it's coming out of Silicon Valley, like a place Uh, of productivity. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, front runners like Tim Ferriss and people like that, that are advocating for these drugs and they're advocating for them for a a productivity and efficiency sort of way. Like they run off the the theory that if you can clear your mind, if you can clear your anxiety, if you can clear all this emotional baggage that's weighing you down, it can free you up and allow you to put your mind where you want to put it. And a lot of times for these guys, that's towards productivity and making money. Absolutely. And I also say too, just on that same note, also creativity, right? Seeing, seeing things in a new way, seeing things in a different way. You know, I mean, it's, it's now it's a cliche example, but you know, Steve jobs talked about drug use and you know, how important that was for him. So, I mean, it's, it's all to, to just demonize something that clearly brings benefit to so many people. And that I, I would think even more importantly has been important, you know, these, these broader class of, of chemicals, if you will, have been an important part of, of cultures for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. So to just yeah. come out and just to have the attitude of, you know, either they're bad or stupid, you know, whatever it is, whatever the, the demonizing language was of the of the 60s. Uh, I think is a, is a huge disservice. Yeah. And as, as we wind down this topic there, you can't bring up psychedelics without talking about machine elves, in my opinion. Right, 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 right. Let let me, let me just set the stage here for anyone that hasn't heard of machine elves before. Um, There's, there's countless reports of when large groups of people get together, especially in places like the South American uh, rainforests and they do ayahuasca or other hallucinogens. Uh, during the trip, they all independently report seeing the exact same entities or creatures or beings uh, while they're tripping on psychedelics. And th- their stories are consistent with each other. So after they finish their trips, you know, they'll come back, they'll recap, and they'll talk about what they saw. And they all will have seen the exact same number of these entities. And they're often reported as like peaceful beings, like curious, uh, welcoming. And it, it it is bizarre that they report the reports that they, that they give on these beings are all very similar to each other. So I, I mean, is there something there? Is there something that is getting tapped into or is this just uh, confirmation bias and hallucinations? Right. Well, and as this, and of, of course, we're probably the most popular person to talk about this in the contemporary society would be Joe Rogan, right. Who talks about seeing mm. geometric entities and on, on, on his show that we've, that we we've watched and so i mean i i you know what is it what does it mean who knows i mean i i think it's it's hard to put a name or a label on on how meaningful that kind of thing is until you really get good open-minded research into these drugs and, and into what they're doing to the brain when people are using them and so hopefully the renewed interest from silicon valley and the renewed interest just in, in other people that are that are finding out about these chemicals, hopefully that leads to good, good science, good research, and, and some interesting answers. Yeah, and it is very interesting to hear reports and stories of how the U.S. government 
is communicating with these machine elves um, in ways to improve our country or to spy on other nations or to improve technology. So it's something else we can keep an eye on. But what, that, I think that's uh, pretty good with respect to psychedelics. Um, yeah, and I, I will well, next topic here. Sure, and I was just gonna as a, as a closing as, as as a closing thought, you know, as I as I finish this book and as I you know read more, it's something that will, I'm sure, revisit more on on this channel. Um, I mean, there's, there's only going to be more interesting things to to talk about. Once I finish the book, I'd like to kind of organize my thoughts and really come up with at least a a story, I guess, if if what what components of the movement in the past led to its failure and how could those movements or how could those faults be changed to prevent it from shortfalls uh, again. But yeah, yeah definitely. We'll, I will, we'll definitely revisit it again. I'd say that now that all the advocates for these drugs are uh, actually bathing and functioning members of society, I, I think that will take it a long way. Oh, I think so too. But so oh, on, here I have that you, the moral imperative of entrepreneurship yeah. Um, did you yeah. want to talk about that a little bit? I do. And this, this is a topic that, um, and it was, it was something that, that we've talked about in the past just be, between you and I, and it was, it was basically a conversation about what, what are we trying to, you know, people who are, you know, so we're, we're both engineers, you know, probably the majority of our friends have some kind of technical degree. Um, but even if they don't, all of us are, are, are working in whatever, whatever job we have, we're all in the, in the mindset, or I think we should be in the mindset of creating value, but there is something that is always inherently unsatisfying when the value that you're creating is manifested by somebody else's vision. Now, plenty of us start off working for other people. I think you, maybe you, unless you're a real super genius, maybe you, you have to start there to make some money and to learn about whatever industry you, you happen to be in. But I think the moral imperative for entrepreneurship comes from something that you said to me one time in the conversation, which is that at the end of the day, the only person who can be the best version of who you are is yourself. Mm. And that's just a fact of life. There will never be another Joseph Stanford. There'll never be another Jimmy Hackett. There'll never be another one of, you know, anyone listening to this episode, there will only ever be one you. And so the moral imperative for entrepreneurship is basically the moral imperative that as a unique individual, you should be working to bring your vision into the world because that vision will never exist in anybody else. It, it's going to be unique to you because it is coming from you. And so the moral imperative yeah. comes from the idea that if, if you are not working towards doing something that is truly unique to yourself, then in a, in a sense, you're wasting because that opportunity will literally only ever come once. And that seems like a tremendous thing to waste, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, you know, as, as you go through life, you'll realize that there's always going to be people smarter than you. There's always going to be people taller, stronger, harder working, more creative, you know, better at underwater basket weaving, like whatever it is, there's right, always going right. to be some, someone better than you. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a logical fact that no one can be better at being you than you. Right. So that, that's your skill. That's your wheelhouse. That's where the, the focus needs to be. And that's where all entrepreneurship starts from, in my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, it really, it really, it, it, it has to. And I, I wish I could remember the person who, who said this, but, um, you know, the, the whole point of, of business is we're looking out in the world 
seeing who actually I remember who said it. His name was George Gilder, who's an economist. And what he what he said is that um, all business is the process of looking out in the world, seeing or observing somebody else's needs and then delivering on those needs. That is what drives a business. And so if you're an entrepreneur, as you were just saying, you're you're only ever going to be or rather you. The only person who can be the best, the best version of yourself is yourself. So there's going to be some need out in the world that you are uniquely suited to fulfill. And the role of entrepreneurship is bringing that fulfillment into action. You're satisfying that, that need in a way that can really only ever be satisfied by you. And I think that also links into motivation in, in a way as well. Uh, you know, working for, you're talking about when you're working towards someone else's vision and towards someone else's goal, like during a nine to five type job. Right. It's, it's hard to derive motivation from that because it's the real, the real motivating factor at that point is just the money that you're making from doing it. It's not from the vision. It's not from the direction. In in most cases, some people it is. Maybe the experience too, right? Maybe, maybe you're, you're learning about the field. But yeah, that's kind of a slippery slope though. Cause a lot of times you're, you're gaining experience so that you're employable by other similar employers in similar circumstances. Right. So then right. at that point you're here, you're pursuing similar other people's visions in other right. words. Right. No but, doubt about uh, that. But I, yeah. I, I wanted to say that when you're, when you're being authentic to yourself and you're finding the things that drive you, that motivation comes almost second nature. It's not, you don't have to force yourself. It doesn't require discipline or as much discipline to execute on some of these ideas, but it's, it's almost as, so Stephen Pressfield is an author. He wrote a, I I forget the names of these books he's written, but his whole thing is that finding your muse, finding the energy that just flows naturally for through you into creativity and productivity. So his whole argument is that, you're not going to be able to force yourself to do something you don't want to do. You you got to start exploring the things that do interest you, the things that do drive you. And and from there, you'll be able to find the energy to, you know, make content, make creations and, and, and eventually monetize it at some point possibly. So that that's your, your income and your lifestyle are merged together at that point. So that, that's something that is definitely been at the forefront of my thoughts recently. And uh, it, it seems more and more true as I stand back and look at my own motivations. Right. And I think it's important that, and I, I guess I would, I would say this directly, that anybody who is working for somebody else, I, I think really, unless your goal is to rise to the top leadership of whatever group you're in, that that, that leadership happens to line up with your vision as you see it, and that's, that, that's a different scenario. But for everybody else, the goal ought to be working to at some point employ yourself and to at some point do something that is truly unique and creative. And that is a tall order. I, 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 I don't even know that I would say that I'm truly living that way right now. I, I have made some changes to, to do that, but I, I think if you're not if you're not working towards high level high level leadership and wherever you're at, or if you're not working for trying to generate something truly novel, then um, I think you run the risk. And I, I think both of us would say that we we've seen people who fit who fit this description that you run the risk of of uh, finding your life very unsatisfying. 
Yeah, and unfortunately, humans are very good at coping with things and, and Adapting, falling into right? the status quo. Yep. So it, it's it it's not a topic that gets a lot of attention, or the attention that it does get, it doesn't get a lot of action takers. So yeah. it, we're at a point where there's still just not that much known about, not that much information out there on this and how to you know reliably execute it, and achieve that lifestyle. Sure, there's a few good entrepreneurs out there and people that can describe it, but it, it's still not very well known and understood in today's society. Yeah, and it's, it's something that I think we would expect there to be a good amount of variability on, that the path for somebody to become, say, a musician may look totally different than somebody who wants to invent a new uh, auto part or something. But I, I think as long as you have, as long as you are consciously making the effort of setting that as your destination, and if you're continuously looking for things to do on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis to bring you closer to that, um, then I, I think that that's a good place to start. And, I, you know, this is tying off with uh, Scott Adams and systems versus goals. I think in this case, you, you, you might need both. You, you, know, you want to have some kind of goal of working for yourself. But definitely the system, the, the system is more important. And I think the most important system here is uh, realization that if you're not happy with where you are, then it's your responsibility to change that and to not just accept where you are. That's a bad idea. It yeah. is better to realize that you do have something unique to bring to the world. I mean, that's, you know, if, if, I, if I had one belief that I, I just kind of accept it would probably be that it would probably be that one that really I, I do think everybody deep down has something valuable to contribute and that it really is a tremendous waste if people never take a chance to do that yeah and it seems like that's the case that 99 95 percent of everyone out there just has has given up on it you know whether it's because they have kids and they now have dependents and they can't you know, take those kind of financial risks to, to do, try new things and to challenge the status quo. That's one thing, sure. but it, it's, it's really unfortunate that people are getting stuck in these traps. Well, and I, I think another one too is, is just even the, the status quo of just not, it's something where there really is no defined path. I mean, even if you had two people that started their own software companies, I mean, they probably had very different paths for how they actually did that. And so, I mean, it really is a situation where, you have to be comfortable with risk, which is hard for, for many reasons, some of which are extremely legitimate. You know, if you have a medical condition and you really need to have health insurance, if you have a child that's really said that needs to have health insurance. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to come across like I'm, I'm minimizing people who are not taking these risks. I, I, I'm more what I want to say is if, um, if you're concerned that you do not have something unique to bring to the world, I can guarantee that that is not true. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm basing that off of the, the thing that you were saying earlier about um, you only ever, ever, you are the only person who can be the best version of yourself. And also tying that in with the yep. book that I read a few weeks ago called Zero to One by Peter Thiel, where he talks about this, the necessity of going from zero to one, the necessity of creation, and that that really is the engine that, that drives human progress forward. So if you only, if you're only going to start with one thing, start by truly believing that you do have value to bring to the world and that, um, you know, let, let that be something that, that you work towards and that you work towards manifesting in yourself. Yeah. And we mentioned, uh, the, the importance of systems versus goals in, in terms of getting from where you are to get where you want to right. be. 
and I, I think one of the biggest problems that people struggle with is that they don't know exactly what they want to do. Like sure. they know that they enjoy certain things. They know kind of have a general idea of what they don't like, but a, a lot of the times they don't know what types of systems to start implementing in their lives. And I, I think they get a little overwhelmed and uh, intimidated by those, the sheer many options that you have of different talents to build in your talent right. stack. So I, that's why I'm, I'm on big advocate of, if you don't know exactly where you want to end up, there's a few general, general talents, a few general systems that you can implement. Like it's always going to be a good idea to be a good communicator, yeah. to be a clear thinker, mm -hmm. to be a good writer. And those are great places to start. Um, personally for me, like when I have a lot of downtime or when I have free time and I don't know exactly what to allocate it towards, uh, I, I I think reading is a great option. Like I've never looked back at myself reading a book and been like, Oh, that was a waste. Right. Of right. Or that was a wasted amount of time. It's like, it's a good fail safe option so that you know that it's worthwhile time that's being spent and, and you're, you're not going to regret it later. Yeah. I, I, I totally so agree. Reading is invaluable from that. I mean, that, one of my, one of my favorite things to do, and of course this is all pre COVID, but you know, I, I used to love just going into old bookstores or even just into Barnes and Noble. And if I saw a book that wasn't too expensive that I thought looked interesting, I would just go ahead and buy it. And it doesn't mean that I would go home and, re and read it right away. It means that I would buy it. I put it on the bookshelf. Maybe, you know, I, I have books that I've bought and have read two years after the fact, but having a bookshelf full of ideas that you can explore when you have downtime or when there's just something that you want to learn more about is, is a great way to spend, you know, if you, if you happen to have extra money, a, a great thing to put money towards. There's something different about reading a book versus reading a Wikipedia article. And I think the biggest difference is that with a book, you are committed to focusing on that idea for the duration of the book. It's very easy to open mm -hmm. up a Wikipedia page and read two paragraphs, but I can guarantee you that nobody has ever remembered the two paragraphs they read on Wikipedia. It just has never happened before. But if you have even mm -hmm. just a passing interest in genetics or a passing interest in some part of physics, and you, you buy a book on that topic, if you focus on that book for the eight hours or so it takes you to read the book, you will, you will retain more from it because you're going to be spending eight hours in total reading that information, focusing on absorbing that information. So even with computers, even with internet, I still think that there's a huge place for books because it forces you to focus that time on that one topic. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of the mental rep repetition that you get for reading it. Because when you read a book, a lot of the chapters are like are pretty similar. Like it's there's a lot of restating, yeah, yeah. a lot of just kind of describing things from yeah. different angles, like using different examples, that type of thing. And and like you said, with Wikipedia, it's it's a it's kind of just a distilled version, concentrated version right. of that information. It's as as much as as dense as it can be in just a yeah. few sentences is the strategy nobody ever learned from a uh, control and, uh, it, right i mean nobody ever learned from control fun like i'm gonna look yeah. for this one word i need oh perfect there it is divide by five it's like <laughs> no, okay you're, that's, that's like a, you're not learning i wanted to say something you mentioned earlier that i thought was really uh spot on and i i totally agree with that i didn't have as much appreciation for until a few months ago and that is the value of repetition the value of repeating yourself the value of a work repeating mm. itself you know, one of the one of the main books that probably all of us have some exposure to is the Bible. The Bible is full of repetition over and over again. And it, or it, whether it's the exact same thing over and over again, which happens from time to time, or just the story, but retold different characters, all about repetition over and over again. 
And that was something that I, I probably would have been annoyed at younger. But as I get older, I understand that's that's how the human mind works. You, we have to repeat. We have to learn. And uh, re repetition is the best way to do that. Yeah. Um, can you can you share any ex uh, examples of repetition? that you Sure. Can so even even early on, there's frequently the uh, the trope of somebody leaving their home and finding a wife that that happens with a few characters in the Bible. Um, the other thing that happens is there are, I should have had some examples written, uh, written down, but there are examples where one sentence will say something and then the next sentence will just restate that sentence before it, or maybe it's like the sentence after restates the one before it. Um, but it, it, it's a clever little trick uh, to basically kind of bring something to your attention. And, you know, it's something that I, that, again, I think is very clever that I probably would have undervalued, you know, I, something that I would have said as like a snarky 20 year old is like, oh, they, they could have made this, you know, you know, half as long if they just take out repetition. But it's like, yeah, half as long and, and also half as good because you're, you're losing, mm -hmm. the, rep, the re, repetition is basically a, a, a literary way of highlighting information. And um, I mean, that's yeah. just su such a powerful tool that uh, I think as our society moves towards you know, quicker uh, stories, getting things out to print faster and more efficient, and everything else. We're losing the 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 human aspect of the writing, and uh, part of that is definitely the author recognizing the value of repetition, putting it on purpose into the work, in order to restate important themes. Yeah, and that's that's super evident in prayer as well. Like, look at the stations right. of the cross and right. Catholicism, or praying right. praying the Rosary. Like, that's all. That's repetition, any prayer in general, yep. psalms, you know, song, all that. It's all over the place. So what what do you think? Obviously, the creators of the Bible and the religion, they knew what they were doing and almost in a, in, a, in a freaky sense and how spot on they were with a lot of what they came up with. Who, who do you think these authors were? Yeah, so I have uh, a Jewish study Bible, which is really nice because in the footnotes, it actually de describes not just uh, interpretations of what the text is, but also some of the historical context of what the text is. And so, you know, just basing my answer off of what I've read in this so far, that they've been able to identify just through the, the words that people use or the, the structure of the sentences that people use, that there's, I, I think, three distinct different authors for much of the Old Testament. And so it's... And that's something that I, I probably have more appreciation for now, too, reading through it with that knowledge of the idea that this book evolved over a long period of time, in my opinion, makes it more valuable because you understand that people inherited these texts, whether from the written book or from the oral tradition or whatever, whatever it may have been. And this wisdom has been passed on through so many people that it seems very unlikely to me that I could look at a book that's been around for 2000 years, or I mean more for this one, that's been around for so long and find nothing of value. You know, that, that to me would seem as the, uh, of the utmost arrogance, I think. And it's definitely something that I'm, that I'm sure I would have said in the past, you know, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but I can even, even me, I can still find value in it, in a book that for you know thousands of years, people have looked to for moral structure and for moral understanding. Um, so as far as who they were, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that they were smarter people than I was. That, that's for sure. 
Yeah, it's it's just mind blowing to me because I look at all the authors of today and all the great, you know, contributors today. And I don't see anyone that could even come close to to matching some of the, the genius sure. that you see in some of these religious texts, especially from the Hindu yeah. religion, from Eastern philosophies, um, to Catholicism, Judaism. It, it, it almost seems like there was a, some sort of divine intervention in writing these. But I, I don't know. That's that's not no an easy by thing by no means. And I and I think you know uh, for for most people, it, it's a question that you know maybe in 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 some sense isn't even that important. That maybe it's more important that we we look at these books and we we try to look for. In other words, we we give these books the benefit of the doubt that whatever their origins are or whatever their origins were, we can still make an effort to read them and to find value in them the way that millions of people before us have done, uh, you know, it seems like it would be a very arrogant stroke of society to say, Oh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've moved on. I, I doubt it. I, I think that these books will continue to bring value to people for the foreseeable future. That would, that would be a, I think in my opinion, a very safe prediction. Yeah. And another interesting thing is I'm starting to see a lot of people kind of go full circle on religion. Like I remember, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it, it was kind of a lot of people were breaking away from Catholicism, breaking away from Christianity and, you know, kind of moving towards atheism, atheism in a lot of ways. Uh, but I through Twitter and through 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 social media, I, I feel as though I'm starting to see a resurgence in religion. Like a lot of people, a lot of people like former playboys, former pickup pick artists. I know Roosh V, for example, um, is took in a hard corner and come back to Catholicism or to, uh, I'm not sure if he's Catholic, but he, he's very religious now. And a, a lot of people similar to him have made that corner as well. And I think it's because they're starting to see the pragmatic, pragmatic benefits of Christianity, Catholicism, et cetera. Um, I, I've said it before, but I, I think that if the Bible didn't say so much stuff about gay people, the right. stuff that it does, I think that uh, religion would have been around a lot. Yeah, I, I think that there's some today. truth to, to that. I would say, you know, if it were kinder to gay people, I think if there was some some more examples, there there, there are some that are important. I think if there are maybe even some more uh, examples of strong female characters, that that might have more appeal to people as well. But I think, mm. I think as far as the, the, the full circle, I think, I think definitely it's very easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater in some sense. And you can, you can step away from a belief setting without having to throw away every single one of the beliefs. And uh, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about these books having value that even if you stop believing in divine authorship, it would still be a mistake to not take the book seriously because wherever they came from, they've been here for a really long time. And it seems unlikely that society has changed so much <laughs> that books that were meaningful for millions of people would over a short period of time, stop being meaningful. I mean, people still find meaning in the old Greek texts, you know, for example, you know, I mean, it seems unlikely mm -hmm. that we would ever reach a point where we can move on from these entirely, I, maybe our interpretations change, maybe our relationship with the text change, maybe we become more critical, which I think is also fine. But as long as you're engaging in, in, in a moral argument, um, I think the Bible will be important. Again, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it's, it's going to be important either way. And so, uh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely relevant. Okay. 
Um, we have one more topic on here, um, talking about shaking up slumps and mental resilience. Yeah, this is, I, I think this is going to be an important one for people. In, I mean, I've, I've seen it in my own life. Uh, I think talking to you, we, we both have kind of had some, some, some slumps in our life. And I think COVID and lockdowns, <laughs> unless you're a very introverted person, which is, which is possible. I think most of us are mm-hmm. taking, uh, a bit of a, a time to adjust to lockdowns and then also just the the general uh uncertainty with the world as it currently stands and so i i have been trying to look for some some systems for mental resilience in my own life and i i was going to share a couple and basically it, it sounds really simple but i think that there's still a truth to it is there's some some things in life that you can always have going on and there are some things you can do to get out of the slump that at least work for me and i won't say this work for everybody but they at least work for me and uh, one of the things and and uh, of course the, this builds on you know some of the authors that we were mentioning earlier uh you know some of this is just repeating their own things that i i think is also valuable but you know some of the things you can always have going on in your life you can always be learning something new you can always be continuing education whether this is through you know, reading like we were talking about earlier, maybe you're taking an online class, whatever it may be, you should always be challenging your mind with new ideas. And that is important for a slump because if you can learn something on your own, you will gain confidence from that exercise. You will gain a sense of self-worth. You will gain a sense of empowerment. Uh, taking control of something is generally a good way to improve your outlook on your own life because it will create ownership and it will, and it will re, it will convince you that change is possible, which is, I think that's a huge part of getting out of a slump. This next one took me probably 26 years to take seriously. And that is uh, eating healthy. Um, I mean, I, I'm notorious for being a bad, for being uh, bad with my diet. I was, was lucky enough to have a decent metabolism where I, I could eat almost guilt-free, not as guilt-free as uh, maybe you can, but, fairly guilt-free, but you reach a point where you begin to realize that even if you're not gaining a lot of weight, even if you're not unhealthy in terms of your, of your, of your, whatever numbers you're looking at, generally it is true, at least I found for myself, that when I eat healthy, I feel better. And it's so obvious, but it took me literally 26 years to actually take seriously. I, I can't defend that. It was purely just stupidity on my part, but eating healthy is something you can always, you can always be working to improve your diet, you can always be working to, to cut unhealthy things out. Um, both of us are big fans of, of exercise that can be hard with COVID, but always just something at your house, you know, 20 minutes a day, again, the mental slump, if you can convince yourself that you can change your body through exercise by getting stronger, you can convince yourself that you can change other things as well. I mean, really changing your, 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 your physical abilities is a great way to gain confidence in your ability to create change. Um, next one is, is a good, again, these are going to sound silly. Maintain good hygiene. I, I wrote this one down because I mean I I bathe frequently. That's not a problem for me. But one thing that I that I do let go sometimes is uh, I don't shave as as often as I should, and I get nasty nasty beard neck, mm. which is never good. Um, and just for the yeah, just for the listeners, what yeah, part of the body point. are we talking about? So for for me, I'm I'm talking about my face. Um, I have fairly a fairly thick beard, and the the curse of of a good beard is of course having a good neck beard as well. But if I if I let my neck beard go for a few days mm. without shaving it, then I uh, I feel pretty gross, and I think feeling gross leads to uh, bad uh, 
bad mental outlook as it does for me. And uh, the, this last one is important, especially mm -hmm. for COVID, and that's going to be keeping in contact with family and friends. Um, humans are tribal in nature. We are we we were born into a clan. We we exist in a clan. It's really important to keep in touch with people, mm -hmm. uh, family and friends, especially. Um, take time to do it. You know, that was something that at the beginning of the lockdown, I kind of pushed off. I thought I didn't really need to pay that much attention to. Uh, recently, I've been talking to my family more and my, and my friends more on the phone. And I think it makes a huge difference. I really do. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, you were talking about, I, I like the way you were saying about how, how it, the more accomplishments, again, you achieve it, contributes to your confidence and the more confidence you have, the, the better in life you are in general. And I wanted to just touch on a few, a few uh, strategies that I use to kind of maintain my own sanity. Um, the, the first, the first one I want to say is that it's this notion of being happy is a false notion. I think it's an illusion. Happiness is really something that comes and goes. I, I think it's much more realistic to, to seek something called peace you know, just a state of peace where you're neither happy nor sad because that, that that's not too bad of a deal. That's not a bad thing to have. Sure. It's a good place to be. And in order to fend off negativity, I, I see two big strategies for that. The first one is, uh, is just staying busy, occupying yeah, your mind yeah, with definitely. other things. Like if you're, if you're always busy, like cleaning your apartment or cooking or, you know, writing or reading and you don't really give your mind any idle time to start to worry, then you're probably going to, you're probably not going to be too sad. You're, you're going to have a lot. You're not going to have time to dwell in these negative thoughts that, yeah. that plague your mind. So that's always a good strategy, when, especially when you're in a slump, slump or something. Um, yeah, heavy, you know, heavy deadlifts is another great way to break some of these slumps. If you, if you, if you take but somebody a, a who is depressed and you increase their deadlift yeah. by 100 pounds, that person will be better than they were before and they will have a measured way of proving it to themselves. It's literally quantified self-improvement. Yep. That is what lifting weights is, quantified self-improvement. Yeah, or, or even just the sheer fact if you're having a bad day and you go to the gym afterwards and you go in a grumpy mood, you're tired and everything, and you have all these things on your mind, it's, it's impossible to keep those things on your mind right. when you're hitting you know, reps 6, 7, and 8, or 300 <laughs> yeah. on the bar. Like it, it's, it, you're not thinking about no. anything else. And it's, it's a good reset button for you. But more importantly, I think that the best way to achieve, achieve peace is to break these habits of your mind. And, and, and what I mean by that is break these habits of anxiety. We're all kind of have this natural tendency to always be thinking of the future or the past. And those are really just habits. They're just bad habits of the mind. So working on developing the, the, the awareness and uh, the strategies to start breaking these habits it's going to bring a lot of peace to someone and, it, and it's something that goes unchecked with most people most people aren't aware that their minds are just contr yeah. controlled by habits so if they make no effort to observe them or to break them then that's just going to be a sad place for people to end up and it seems like more and more the case the more and more people I talk and to. i think you make a good point about if you can convince yourself that your attitude is under your control that alone will put you on a path to, you know, as, as, as you're saying, peace. If you convince yourself that how you think does not have to be what defines you as a person, then 
you are on a great path for success because there are ways that you can change mm -hmm. the way that you view things. I mean, that's what therapy is. That's what a self-help book is. I mean, people are, they spend their lives, you know, uh, you know Tim Robbins or, uh, yeah, Tim, Tim, uh, Tony Robbins, Tony Robbins. Too, as I was say, Tim, Tim Ferriss, and then also Scott Adams. These people, they write books talking about this. It is possible to change how you view the world and how you view your place in the world. And putting, if, if, taking responsibility for your attitude is I think what defines an adult versus a child. And that is the, the key characteristic of people that are successful is that they don't get bothered by failure. And that is controlling your attitude. Nobody likes to fail, but if you can convince yourself that you don't have to let that feeling dominate what you do next, then you're on a path for success. Yeah, just being able to reframe failure as, a, as an excuse or an opportunity to learn rather than an excuse to feel bad for yourself and yep. fall into a slump. But, but that's a, having that, that ability to observe yourself, even when you were talking about nutrition earlier and how when you eat certain foods, right. it makes you feel like shit. Most people just don't have the capacity to, you know, to observe their body and or they that they haven't learned that, it yet. Yeah. Hey, if I eat two bags of gummy worms, I, I my, my back hurts. You know, I'm gonna yeah. feel like crap. Yeah, and I, and I would say that yeah, they, they don't have that capacity because they haven't learned it yet. You know, I mean, I I didn't have that capacity until I was almost thirty. I mean, I ate terrible in college. I had caffeine every sure. single day. I had you know, not just some, like a lot of caffeine every single day. I ate planning hot Cheetos three times a day. And I was like, all of a sudden I feel bad. I, I can't imagine why that is. Maybe, I, you know, maybe I have some kind of disease or something. Uh, maybe it could be, but possibly it's the fact that you put nothing but chili powder and sugar in your belly for the past five hours. And I, you know, you don't feel so good. You know, it could be, it could be either one, but if I had to bet, I know, I know how I'm going to bet on that, on, on, on that outcome. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of people can get away with it yep. for so long, but sometime it seems between the ages yep. of twenty and thirty, a, a lot of people take that corner. And you're right. I mean, they're 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 at a loss because they they don't understand. And, and, and even if you can take it, it doesn't mean that it's optimal. And so, even if you're eating unhealthy now and getting away with it, I would still bet that you'd feel better if you ate better. And so, even you don't have to mm -hmm. be sick to get better. I, I I heard that one time at a at a soccer camp where I actually was terrible. So I, it didn't apply to me, but other people that were there, I mean, they probably took something from that, but the, the idea that you don't have to be sick to get better, I think is great. A great thing to remember as well. Sure. And I, I think that's a good place to call this I think so podcast. Too. Um, I, I would like to give a teaser for next week and kind sure. of wrap things up. Do you want to take a crack at that? Well, so like I, like I was saying earlier, this is our first episode of, uh, of, a, of a podcast where, you know, we're basically exploring various uh, pitfalls, different scenarios and, and ways of actioning on items that we think a good amount of people in our audience will, will, will face. So next week we have something that is, that is a little more uh, personal, a little closer to home. And we're looking at uh, kind of navigating the uh, – past of, of college relationships or, or lack thereof rather and, and seeing where it goes so join us next week we'll have a guest on the show and uh, we'll discuss um, the uh, butterfly effect of uh, college romance <laughs>